Hi, this is Dan Slott, and you're listening to NerdCulturePodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. I'm your host David, and we'll be at the NCP crew, Richo. Mm, wasn't I on episode 61? But yep. snubbed for 62! No, 62 was uh, Bo and myself. Yeah, I don't know if I like that. Hey, you were invited to join us and you chose not to. Mainly because yeah. we record at like 7am Saturday morning. Yeah, i got to get my beauty sleep. <laughs> That's a lot of sleep, dude. <laughs> hey. it's, like, it's like a coma. <laughs> and this depression will not stand. <laughs> I was wondering why I had a blackout then. You know, 61, 63, something must have happened in between. It's something getting suspicious. Yeah, I'm looking at all of you. Here's the black we're actually slowly being replaced, pod person style, <laughs> pod, by Dave. Pod person, that works. Yeah, so like replacing us person. with these other mysterious people that we don't know. Good. And Crystal. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Very understated, <laughs> like the others. For this episode, we have a dust jacket on Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Yeah. As well as our patented, they've been trademarked, five-minute popcorn junkies. That really. I can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> but what about all that money we're making from our Amazon affiliate? $8 is not enough to patent something, I'm afraid. And then thanks to the awesome people at Armageddon Expo, we have an interview with Mr. Dan Slott, current writer of Superior Spider-Man, a uh, controversial figure online. Let's see what he's like with NCP. And we also announced the winner of our Madman giveaway. You could be the proud owner of Transformers Generation 1 and Samurai Pizza Cats on DVD. You can't say that title without singing it, can you? No, you can't. <laughs> Samurai Pizza Cats. Who is the winner? It could be you. Find out later on in the show. But first up, we've got our dust jacket, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Take it away, Richo. Hyperion is a book written by Dan Simmons. It was published in 1990. Um, it's actually the first Hugo Award winner that we've done for a while as well. Mm. So it's actually good, sort of good to get back to that, I think. The um, Quantum Thief should have been a Hugo Award winner. Yes. Yes, given the uh, books that actually did, were nominated that year and the book that did win. <laughs> Moving on. So just very, very briefly, Hyperion is set in the 29th century. Humanity has expanded to the stars. Um, and Earth has actually been destroyed. You know, there's a now a human uh, hegemony uh, that basically rules uh, the populated planets, but it's under threat by a warlike group called the Ousters. With war sort of looming on the eve of the war, um, a group of pilgrims are selected to travel to the planet Hyperion, where they will follow a pilgrim's path, a very famous pilgrim's path to uh, what's called the Time Tombs, which is basically this series of tombs on Hyperion um, that are apparently empty. And there's a big mystery about uh, what these tombs are, why they were created, um, what may have been in them in the past. But uh, the other looming threat when when you're a pilgrim travelling to Hyperion is that there is this monster called the Shrike, who is actually worshipped as a god, almost like a god of destruction, has his own cult and everything. But um, 
yeah, basically, the Shrike will most likely kill you. <laughs> Seven pilgrims are chosen, and along the way, each of the pilgrims decides to... Uh, they make an agreement to tell their story. Why, you know, why they think they've been chosen, what it is that has drawn them to Hyperion, um, what their past is, and so on. So, um, in that regard, the, the story is effectively a... Um, really a science fiction version of the Canterbury Tales, the very famous uh, Chaucer story uh, from the Middle Ages. I first read Hyperion probably the mid-90s, and uh, I hadn't actually read a lot of science fiction at the time. I mainly picked it up because I thought, you know, big fan of the Canterbury Tales, I thought, hey, this is cool. You know, a science fiction version version of the Canterbury Tales might actually be kind of interesting. And I loved the book at the time, and haven't actually gone back and read it until... Uh, we announced it for the show. But the main reason I chose it is I have a theory that I'd like to put forward to the group and actually get your feedback on this. Um, I haven't been able to find really too many people talking about this online. Um, But to me, what fascinates me about this book, reading it now, having read a lot of the science fiction novels, um, a lot of the classic science fiction novels since then, is that Hyperion seems to be basically a love letter to the science fiction of the past and each of the stories, whilst being, you know, its own thing, seems to me to be referencing past writing styles and past authors. So to give you an example, uh, the first story, uh, the Lena Hoyt story, is about a priest who comes to Hyperion, but he travels into sort of the, the wild area of Hyperion, the unsettled area where, where he encounters a, a, a very simple tribe of basically savages who... Um, were the remnant, the, the sort of descendants of a ship that had crashed in the past. But the way it's written is in um, diary entries, and the style of writing, to me, is very reminiscent of a, of a Jules Verne um, or an H.G. Wells kind of story. Mm. Um, later on, you get um, a hard-boiled detective story, which is a cyberpunk story as well, and therefore clearly referencing the work, especially of William Gibson. Well, he mentions Gibson in yeah, that story. Yeah. So yeah, just um, what what did you guys think? Did was am I crazy or was that part of what this book is about? Well, you are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, t- I'm totally with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. It's I didn't like you. I didn't notice that at the at the time when I first read Hyperion. Um, mm-hmm. But when you mentioned it to us last night, I I've, I was thinking about it for a while on the on the train ride home, and uh, I yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. It's, there's some definitely homages. Yeah, to, to the writing styles yeah. of, of each story, um, which I, I think is a brilliant idea. I kind of went into it with that because the reason why I read this was because Richard actually re- recommended it about ten years ago to me. Mm. Um, so I actually went in with the whole idea. Oh, that the concept was that he was actually um, paying homage to all these different writing styles oh. with, each, with each story. So I actually went in cool. originally yeah. with that idea. Yeah, I, I must admit it was it was something that did dawn on me a long time ago, but without the actual knowledge to back it up Mm -hmm. i wasn't quite sure so luke's knowledge is substantially greater Mm. than mine especially at that point Mm. and so i thought really he he might have a better idea of that um and yeah i I think there is i think there's a little bit of that try to look up online to see if someone had actually done something similar or said something similar yeah i couldn't find one but um, no me neither the way that i broke it down was the first story is quite clearly hg wells jules verne and remember you know i'm reading this ages ago with this mindset the second one is, um, which is Cassard's story, is meant to be, you know, more of a space opera, but it's not Doc Smith because it's not all over the shop. There's actually an emotional core, so it resonates more as a uh, an Edmund Hamilton story, or possibly maybe even Jack Williamson. 
Um, oh. Sort of slightly more pulpish, action-oriented, but with a, an emotional bent to keep it going. The second one, the third one, which is Martin Salinas' story, The Poets, it's either going to be Kurt Vonnegut with its um, a more um, uh, beatnik pro style um, with a bit of Jack Vance, and he actually re- refers mm-hmm. to The Dying Earth in um, with, with the name of Martin Salinas' um, epic poem. Um, which is Jack Vance, one of Jack Vance's novel. Um, the fourth one, Soul Wine Tribe story, I thought might have been uh, Ray Bradbury. The fifth one, you've already mentioned, is Bron Lemire, which is Gibson. Yeah. The sixth one, I kind of thought might be Joe Haldeman. Well, thank you for running that down, because I, I must admit, I'm, I, I still wasn't 100% certain on a, on a lot of these stories as to where we might be sort of coming from. And I'm not saying that I'm correct in any way, shape, or form, just that that's my yeah. impression. And as you said, there doesn't seem to be a lot to sort of back up this theory. Mm. Yeah, so it, it, it seems to me, yeah, that what he's really writing here is a massive love letter to science fiction mm. and to science fiction novels. Just wish it could have been a bit more interesting. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I have to make it a confession here. I, um, <laughs> I didn't actually get to finish this book, I ran out of time, as we say, you know, mm. life interferes, which is unfortunate because I did actually start reading it a year ago, almost a year ago exactly, yeah. when we were first planning to, to <laughs> do this. Well, it's not, it's not a short um, book and it's not an easy yeah. read so either, I was, it's quite complex. I was, in order to sort of follow the discussion, I um, I knew I wasn't going to have any time, so I, I had a better look at the Wikipedia page and I may actually dip into it later and read some of the stories that I thought sounded more interesting than the others. But uh, I got up to the point where it just begins to tell the first story. I wasn't really enjoying it. Um, there's a lot of preamble, mm. a lot, a lot of preamble. So, But having read the Wikipedia entries, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, so I might dip into it back later. As yeah. Read it as a short story book rather than mm. as a novel. Right. That's also that you say that. That's 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 basically essentially my review as well. I'm basically just going to copy your review. I just think it just takes far too long to get into anything interesting. Control C. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 TLDR for sure. And if I was ever going to read it again, I would just read certain stories that yeah. I found that I really? found entertaining. Yeah, interesting. Not as just as as a whole. As a whole, I just don't think it works. Yeah, it just, it just it's too long. It's too dense, and it sort of it sort of goes off its own track. Like it, doesn't, it sort of loses oh, its own I, plot. I actually disagree. Like I was hooked very early on in this, especially when, when the world tree. Mm-hmm. Before uh, the, or after the story started? Before. Before. I was fascinated, especially by the Templars and the world tree. Oh, the, the tree, yeah. She was um, quite good. But yeah. I, I actually found the world building in this amazing. Like mm. I, I love the fact that this, the world building is done through the stories that people are telling. Yeah. And he sets up a mystery right from the first chapter. One of these people is a spy for the Ousters. Yeah. Um, so, so the mystery is there. And as each story is unveiled, I, was, I found myself looking to see if there was anything in it to identify who the traitor might be. And everybody had at least some level of reason to possibly be the traitor. Yeah. And some connection um, with the Ousters. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying... The, the, the mystery of, of the traitor is... Is fine, but I, but that's, but that's what I, what I mean is this sort of, it sort of veers away from mm. that. Like I, I mean, I had no interest in the time tombs mm. at all. Like so, you know, the, it's the empty tombs. Who cares? Mm. Um, there's the monster is. It, I mean, the the monster that's sort of worshipped as a god. I thought was pretty cool. I mean, it's and and the, uh, the world tree. I mean, it's it's full of very cool ideas. Mm. Like there's very very cool world building ideas, but the actual story yeah. sort of loses it. I think. 
Yeah. I think the other thing is, too, I went into it cold, not knowing anything about it at all. Um, mm. So when there was just this massive preamble, I expected something to sort of develop, and then they just sort mm. of shoot off into a completely different story. That was a bit jarring. I'm sorry, some of my, a lot of my problems with this, and I had this the first time around, was there's a lot of tell... You know, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Richard, about the world building, and I agree with Dave about the ideas. There are some good ideas. I felt that I was being told a lot about, oh, this is how the world works, and not being shown or being allowed to experience it. The opening, I think, it shows that quite badly. It, it, instead, of, instead of seeing the characters do something or engage in something that lets you know what they are, they're sitting around a table and they tell you um, what their names are, and you get quite a lengthy paragraph describing what they look like as well. And I sat there going, okay, this is... This is exposition. It's not. It's not. It's not just information. It's exposition, and already right from the outset, I am being bogged down with a lot of detail that I don't need to be told. That I'd like to see in their personality. It's like that you've got to try and memorise this so you know it later. It's the opposite of Dan Brown. (laughs) See, I I disagree with that because it's not just a description of the people you're getting. You're getting uh, the the consul who is our our main character. You are getting his perceptions of each person and then when the stories are actually told his perceptions in some respects are correct and in some respects are incorrect Mm. but i found that that was actually telling me a lot about him as well and how he interprets what's in front of him so i actually saw that completely different that's fine but the way that it the way that's actually written could you could actually cut that down to a lot to you know a few a few sentences or even a few words and still have the effect that you're trying to that you're that you've got there when you just start mm. describing how they're actually mm. sitting in the chair mm. and the movements that they're making while they're eating, that's a, that's a bit too much. The, to me, once again, that's giving me his mm. perceptions of their personalities. Yeah, that's, that's, and, uh, I, I, think, I, think, I actually think we're actually actually all think in agreement. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we're agreeing with you that that's yeah. what is happening. But what I'm saying is, is that I actually don't think it's too wordy. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, I mean, it is, a, it is a long book, it is a very dense book, but at no point did I feel like there was any wasted words or wasted sentences. And I think that's what it comes down to, what you're actually interested in. I, I have no problem with books being wordy. Lord mm. of the Rings is one of my favourite books ever, mm. and I love the descriptions of the hobbits just walking. A lot of, that gets a lot of flack, but I just, I just love that. I just love the descriptions of the countryside and what the hobbits are doing. And, and a lot of people just like, well, get on with it. We just want to hear, you know, read about sword fights and stuff like that. It, I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to do it. It just depends on what you're interested in reading about. Mm, yeah, um, and, mm. and if you're interested, as Richo is, in the body language and the way he's being perceptive, uh, the way that the people are being perceived by the main character, well, you're going to find that fascinating. But if you're not so interested in that, it's, it's a little bit of an effort to get through. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Like I said, I just I didn't feel bogged down at any point mm. during the story. Like it, it held me right from the other. With with the possible exception of I think I think the weaker story is actually the Martin Silentus one, the poet story. Right. But I mean, with with any with any book that involves a series of short stories, even one where you have something linking those stories together, there will always be stronger and weaker mm. stories. And I thought the Silentus one was actually the weakest. I love the Braun Army one just because I love hardboiled detective cyberpunk yeah, that's, stories. That, and that's one of the stronger um, ones because there's stuff actually happening as well. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's get some final thoughts then. I'll go with uh, Two and a Half Weeks. It's an interesting concept, you know, a science fiction version of the Canterbury Tales. And it's not a terrible book per se. It's not the worst book I've ever read. But I do find... That my interest, right, almost right from the outset, was almost non-existent, 
and I do find do, did find it a bit of a chore to get through. It, it's got some okay points, but they're outweighed by the negatives. I give this two looks. Um, given that I read about twenty percent of it, that's probably probably not fair to give it a ranking based on that. Fair enough. Well, I disagree with pretty much everybody else because I absolutely <laughs> love this book and find it fascinating. So I'm going to give it four looks. Okay, awesome. and as, as a final thought, he gets to disagree, but you know. You're wrong. <laughs> you haven't said that for a no, while. No, 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 clearly the, problem here, while. clearly the problem here is that you just, neither of you, or none of you, got it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That was very entertaining. It's nice to get, um, to get disagreements. Mm. Yeah. So as we, as we promised uh, in our previous Dust Jacket, uh, we, we will always be announcing our next Dust Jacket title for our lovely listeners, so they can uh, follow along, read up on it, and follow along if they want to. Uh, so this next, our next pick is Crystal's pick, and Crystal is picking "The Seed of Earth" by Robert Silverberg. It's a Hugo and Nebula Award winner, according to the cover. I know, very exciting. I've never read any Robert Silverberg novels, so I'm well, very excited. Out. You've got a month to read it. <laughs> Starting you- from now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, next up, we have our five minute popcorn junkies. Five minute popcorn junkies. Uh, each crew member will go through uh, a film and uh, review it. Funnily enough, in five minutes oh, or right. less. <laughs> uh, starting off with Richo and Gravity. Gravity! Gravity! It's gravity! Exactly. Gravity is the new film from Alfonso Cuaron, director of Children of Men, which is a personal favourite science fiction film of mine. Fortunately, it only seems really stars George Clooney and Sandra Bullock, so there's not a huge cast to the film. But it does also feature the awesomeness that is the voice of Ed Harris. <laughs> he was very excited. He, uh, Ed Harris is the man. Uh, he takes charge. And he certainly takes charge in this film as the voice of Houston. But uh, the story uh, centers around uh, crewmen on a space shuttle doing repairs uh, on the Hubble telescope, um, including Sandra Bullock's character, who is a doctor. And has had only sort of six months worth of training. Uh, whereas, say, George Clooney's character, for example, is a veteran astronaut who has basically done countless missions and um, has this kind of thing about breaking the uh, record for spacewalking. He's on his last mission. He is on his final mission. Unfortunately, the Russians accidentally blow up one of their own satellites. And debris from that satellite hits a bunch of other satellites and space debris floating around space, because there's a lot of it up there right now, which um, unfortunately then results in the space shuttle that um, these characters are on actually being hit and destroyed. And from there, the story progresses into Sandra Bullock and George Clooney and their efforts to stay alive and to get back to Earth. When this film was first, uh, when I saw trailers for this film, I was a bit concerned because I wasn't quite sure how you were going to get a 90-minute film out of what was presented. But fortunately, uh, they managed to achieve that, and they achieved that, I think, quite well. The film isn't a long film. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It realises that there's only a certain amount of shelf life that this idea has, but it presents that idea well. Um, It tells you enough about the characters for you to actually feel some kind of connection to them and to 
to really feel for the situation that they're in. But really, the strength of this, more than anything else, I think, is actually the way the film is shot. It is a beautifully filmed movie, but it manages to create that a sense of the vastness of space, but also the claustrophobia of being stuck inside either a space suit or, um, you know, a, 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 a space shuttle or an so escape pod. Yeah. Um, in that regard, I think um, I think he's actually watched his, his Kubrick hmm. for that sense, that, that sense of vastness, but claustrophobia at the same time. Um, and there's some wonderfully disorient, disorientating moments when, when the um, accident first happens and the shuttle is hit. Sandra Bullock goes spinning off into space and she can't actually control her momentum. But it's all shot from her point of view. And so you're, you're feeling that sensation as it's happening to her. And, um, it's a bit nauseating. It, it, it is, but it's, he's, he shoots it in a way that really not just shows you what's happening to these characters, but enables you to actually experience some of that for yourself. Um, and I think that's amazing. And that's really, for me, that's the selling point of this film. I saw the 2D version of it. I can imagine for people that like 3D that that experience will actually be heightened substantially in 3D. Um, Maybe some vomit. (laughs) Yeah, but not being a fan of 3D, um, I saw the 2D version, and even then it had a lot of that. Um, It's not a perfect film. There is a, a couple of moments where maybe they sort of overdo them the melodrama a little bit and try to over overdo that connection to the characters um there is one moment which i won't spoil for anybody where for a second there i thought yep this film has jumped the shark completely <laughs> <laughs> i went from i went from the rating that i was i was on i was hovering around sort of three and it plummeted straight to zero yeah and i was like no yeah. and then um, i believe obviously obviously yeah. i went back up <laughs> But, um, yeah, overall, I was impressed by this film. Um, for, for me, it, it's more in the lines of something like Moon, you know, a small cast, um, but really interestingly shot with a really strong story. And um, I'm going to give this three and a half Lukes. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Okay, moving on to Luke and Jour de Fête. Jour de Fête? Yep. Um, is... <laughs> and Dave pronounced it correctly. <laughs> He's so proud of himself. I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jour de Fête, otherwise translated as the Big Day, is a nineteen forty is the nineteen forty one debut feature from Jacques Tati, um, a guy who would become very famous with his second film, The Hulot's uh, Vacation, um, uh, released in yeah as I said nineteen forty nine in France in sort of the post war period. Um, uh, the story is about uh, a small a small town which um, celebrating its you know big fate, its big day, hires a carnival. Um, to come in and you know take care of the celebration and the proceedings, um, involving at one point um, showing a cinema and one of the cinema one of the the films that they show is and it is um, a little uh, documentary on the American mail system. They're showing how modern Amer- how modern American uh, mailmen post their mail. You know helicopters and uh, high speed cars and bicycles, which is in stark contrast to the way that Francois, played by Jacques T, and the main character of the film goes about his daily mail rounds, which is, effectively, if he gets to the mailbox on time, then he considers it to have been a good day's work. If he goes on a little, few little tangents along the way, or has the odd catastrophic mishap, like, say, for instance, falling down well and being unable to get out again, he considers that a good day. However, the, um, the rest of the townsfolk uh, start to make fun of him for the uh, modern attempts that America has, provi- has um, provided for its mailmen, um, and so he takes it to heart and attempts to be, 
to become more modern in himself, which effectively means riding his bicycle really, really fast. <laughs> um, that is the plot in a nutshell. It's not a plot-driven film at all. It's more about um, the things that happen in the moment, which is both, you know, kind of interesting to watch, but also one of the, the downsides. The, the, the real strength is um, Tati's directing. He's got an impeccable sense of timing, a very funny man, and there are there are a lot of actually very funny moments in this film, um, particularly one at the start where they're trying to raise uh, a statue, which he um, invariably gets involved with because he thinks he's smarter than everyone else and can do it um, properly. However, he of course, through the um, through the course of natural events, managed to screw up spectacularly, um, and is actually a very good director. His sense of framing is actually um, is very precise. Um, he's got he does a lot of stuff where you're looking at things in the foreground. But there's also stuff going on in the background. Something that he'd actually do a lot better in, I think, Mr. Hulot's Holiday. Uh, but his ability as a filmmaker is actually quite um, quite extraordinary. You know, this is his first film. He only made a couple of handful of short films, and it immediately, you know, uh, made his mark. The big the big problem I find with this, it, apart from it, it is a very funny film, but narratively speaking, it is actually a very slow film. There are moments where you, sit, where you do go, um, do you sit there, or I was sitting there, what going? Well, hang on, where is this really going to go? And there's not really a lot of... There's a lot of cleverness in terms of the comedy, but not really a lot of cleverness in terms of the story. And seeing Francois overcome a lot of his... Um, a lot of his foibles and a lot of his mishaps to become either a better person or a better mailman or something along those lines, he pretty much remains constant throughout. Almost made a laughing stock. At no point does he really improve himself in any way, shape or form. I chose this film because... Um, Jeu de Fate... Has been seen as a bit of an, has been an, and Tati in general has been seen as a bit of inspiration on Python, in particular Terry Jones, um, and there the the influence is actually quite apparent with the the quick timing, the slightly absurdist nature of of what's going on, um, but also the commentary that um, Tati provides. He's actually not quite not necessarily anti-modern, but anti-fast-paced in that he's not the Francois's whole thing is. Um, you know, going at his own pace, at a pace he feels comfortable at, and if he gets the work done, he gets the work done, whereas others expect him to go faster to become more efficient. Um, and Tati had a bit of a problem with that. He also had a bit of a problem with um, modernism um, in general, and certainly the the bourgeoisie, which he'd sort of comment on in his later films. I think this is a very funny film. I think it's very well shot, and it is, it is entertaining and is worth people's while, but um, on the whole... A little bit, um, a little bit of a letdown in terms of the narrative. Um, I give this uh, three looks. Thanks, Lou. I haven't seen it, but I will now check it out. Uh, next up, we have a crystal and the color of magic. The color of magic is a two-part film uh, made for TV, uh, based on Terry Pratchett's first and second Discworld novel. The cast is David Jason as Rincewind, the wizard, spelled with two Z's. Sean Aston as Two Flower, the tourist, and other uh, there were various other cast members like that's too numerous to mention. But I'd like to, uh, as a special mention, Christopher Lee as the voice of Death. Awesome. And Brian Cox is the narrator. Also awesome. <laughs> yes, I thought you guys would like that. Um, <laughs> the the story starts out. We have the astrozoologists. I can't even say it. Astrozoologists. <laughs> astrozoologists. <laughs> that's what they are. They are at the edge of the Discworld. Um, so the theory is the Discworld is actually a disc sitting on top of four elephants on top of a giant turtle flying through space. The, uh, it was the astrozoologist's task to prove this, which they did. 
However, they failed to prove the sex of the turtle. So they, had to, <laughs> they wanted to have a new mission to prove that. Um, meanwhile, Two Flower comes to Ankh-Morpork, the, the twin city of Ankh and Morpork, joined by the Ankh River. Uh, as a tourist. Now, the people of Ankh-Morpork have never seen a tourist before. They don't know what this guy is on about and his strange clothes and the strange way he talks loudly and slowly at them in order to be understood. Wind's <laughs> 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 um, uh, Wind comes into contact with Two Flower. Uh, Notice he has a large luggage full of gold coins. And uh, the brain starts working. But before this happens, Rincewind is expelled from the Unseen University. The Unseen University is where the wizards uh, teach younger wizards, I guess. <laughs> it's, Makes it's, it's, it's basically Hogwarts. It's around about in the middle of Ankh-Morpork. It has a huge tower that, sort not exactly straight, but you know, <laughs> it stays up. Power magic. The disc world, rather than work on science and physics like our world does, it works on magic. So, to cut a long story short, because it is a long story, as I say, it's a two-part film. The patrician, the ruler of Ankh-Morpork, has ordered Rincewind to look after Two Flower because he wants a good report to go back overseas about Ankh-Morpork. So, Two Flower, much uh, Rincewind, much to his reluctance, is uh, entrusted to look after Two Flower. Um, uh, in, but Two Flower inadvertently burns down most of Ankh-Morpork, so they go on a bit of a, <laughs> a, 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 bit of a, a, bit of a tour. Um, and I won't go too much on about the plot because it is long and involved and winding. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, uh, it's, it's basically it's full of the Terry Pratchett witticisms. Um, uh, one of my favourite lines is Rincewind sort of gets knocked out and he's sort of groggily sitting up and there's a magic sword in the background going, psst, psst, psst. And Rincewind says, no, just slightly dazed. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, earlier on in the, in the film, uh, someone says to, to Rincewind, what's a tourist? He goes, I think it means idiots. <laughs> um, uh, I give this film four and a half. Uh, I, I think it's a shame that it was made for TV only. I think it would have done well as a two-part film in the cinemas. The production level is Excellent. It, 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 it's equal to any of the Harry Potter movies. Um, how is it as a natural translation? Because I know you're a fan of the books as well. Is it an accurate translation? Or? Um, I, ha I don't have any problem with it. I haven't read the book recently enough to be able to compare it too right. much, but I didn't see anything that jumped out at me clearly. I, I think it's a really good representation of Terry Pratchett's work. Terry Pratchett was highly involved and actually even makes a cameo. I won't spoil as to where. <laughs> cool is he wearing his hat when he makes his cameo? Not his hat, no. Uh, <laughs> photo I've ever seen of Terry Pratchett, he's wearing a hat. <laughs> no, I won't spoil it by saying what he's wearing because that'll give it away. <laughs> um, awesome. So that's my awesome. awesome, thanks. Next up is myself uh, with White House Down. Okay, so White House Down is the latest film from Roland Emmerich, uh, best known for his uh, bombastic Hollywood blockbuster type films, including... ID4, which even gets a name check in this film, which is pretty oh, cool. God. <laughs> um, and the reason for that being is because it's set at the White House. So the basic plot is Channing Tatum, uh, his character, wants to become part of the Secret Service, service and uh, protect the president, but fails the interview process, um, but then gets caught up in a attempted kidnapping 
slash destruction. I don't know. It's not really made very clear. <laughs> of, at the White House uh, with pres- with the president, uh, President Sawyer, played by Jamie Foxx. Tatum's character is because he has goes for the interview. He's at the White House, um, and then he's he's with he's with his daughter, his eleven year old daughter, who just loves everything to do with American politics. And uh, they're there when the ta- when the invasion happens. They're on a tour of the White House, and uh, they get separated. And you know, Channing does his hero stuff, and uh, his daughter, um, who I'm going to mention because she has a major major role in the film. Uh, Joey Kin as Emily also becomes quite a hero of the story. And because it's set at the White House, and of course the famous ID4 scene of the White House being destroyed, gets name-checked by the guy who's doing the tour. Uh, it comes on the on the heels of Olympus Has Fallen, which was uh, yet another, the standard Hollywood thing where they do where a film comes up out about some, some topic, and then another film will come out with this, about the same topic, but slightly different, just to see you know who makes more money. It's it's bizarre, but that's what they do. Um, it is actually better than Olympic, Olympus Has Fallen. Which it can't be hard because Olympus Has Fallen was pretty bad, and this one is very heavily influenced. Well, just like Olympus Has Fallen, I suppose, very heavily influenced by Die Hard. So it is is one of those Die Hard type clones, um, but even more so in this film in terms of just basic plot elements. So they, the terrorists don't know that Emily is uh, Channing Tatum's daughter until a certain point, and then they they basically recreate the scene where uh, Gruber finally finds out, finally realises who it is and, and lifts up the fam- you know, family photo and, you know, Mrs. McLean, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's pretty full-on. And as a die-hard, die-hard fan... Um, <laughs> you, you've, you've reviewed this I, film just so you can use I mean, that line, haven't you? I, I, I went there. Um, I kind of enjoyed it. I won't deny it. I actually quite enjoyed it. It wasn't. It didn't annoy me like Olympus Has Fallen did in terms in terms of this. So it, it seemed more of a homage than more than just a complete ripoff. But that being said, it is a Roland Emmerich film, and so therefore it's automatically not good. Um, there's, <laughs> That's a bit harsh. There's, there's, no, it's true. It's absolutely true. It is more enjoyable than Olympus, um, but still, let's face it, it's incredibly dumb. But as long as you go into it with the sort of the mindset of, hey, I'm going to enjoy some ridiculous Americanism. Um, sort of stuff, and you can, if you can enjoy the rapport that uh, Channing Tatum and Jamie Foxx's characters have, which uh, I, I really like the way they did it, it was, it was basically instantaneous. It was not, none of this sort of antagonistic, you know, we hate each other, but we sort of learn to respect each other. It was basically right off the bat, they like each other, and so they, they sort of go off as, as sort of a buddy, a buddy cop team, and I like that sort of stuff. I like that sort of lethal weapon type stuff. Um, so that's cool. Um, and. Uh, the only, only really, uh, the only other really sort of things that hamper it is Channing Tatum just can't act. Um, he just has no screen presence <laughs> of any kind. It's, and it's weird. And I, I kind of like him. It's weird. I, I like him, but he's really, he's terrible. And so, so, so Jamie Foxx is sort of left to sort of shoulder the load. And then funnily enough, um, young Emily, the you know Joey King, is probably the best actor in the show, which is pretty weird. Um, but, you know, she, she gets some cool moments. Um, I quite liked the baddies as well. The baddies were sort of fleshed out a bit more. Most of them were just rip-offs of the die-hard baddies, but still, at least they were a little bit more fleshed out. There's more than you get with most baddies these days, um, and the plot made a bit more sense. So, yeah, if you like dumb action films, check it out. It's not a waste of your time. I wouldn't buy it, <laughs> but, you know, you know, check it out if you just want a, uh, a bit of escapism. I'll give it uh, two and a half looks. Next up is the interview with Mr. Dan Slott. Hello. Hello. Hello, sir. Hello. Uh, my name is David from Nerd Culture Podcast. Okay, cool. Um, Wow, that's an epic flight. I have no idea. I follow, I follow you on Twitter, and that uh, was, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> it was just uh, when you said, when, you, when I saw the tweet saying that you were still three hours away, and it was like seven o'clock our time, and I was like, oh my God, is he going to make it? 
Uh, and I, I did like two all-nighters in a row before I, I went. I, the way I packed was I sent out laundry, and when laundry came back, all I did was I, I like I flung out the bed sheets and the towels, and then just took the whole laundry bag and just shoved it. <laughs> <laughs> There's like no Cause time. Because you, you just did uh, New York Comic Con. Yeah, just did New York Comic Con. And um, with the surfer now, I have to do... The only way my schedule works is if normally I, I would just do one thing a week. I would do a plot or a script. Yeah. And now with Surfer, the end, we have a secrety thing coming up the end of next year for our, our Spider-Man thing, and we have to start. Uh, we have to start getting it drawn now. Yeah. It's really big. It's really epic. So the only way I can get everything done is if I get two things in a week. Wow. Which is so it's like I'm on double workload for a. This isn't a beard. I, st- I just stopped shaving. <laughs> it is an epic beard. <laughs> it's it's it, honest to God. It was not an attempt to grow a beard. I just never have time to shave. <laughs> um, so uh, this is David, and I'm here with, uh, as you've just heard for the last couple of seconds, uh, Mr. Dan Slot. Hello. Um, an absolute pleasure to, to meet you and talk to you. Oh, that we were recording that. Yeah, we were rec- going. We, oh, we, I, was, I recorded all that. I might. I might, ah! I might not include. Um, but you, you, so you were, of course, referring to Silver Surfer, which is your upcoming project with Mike Allred. Yes! Uh, that's very Mike exciting. Doc Allred. He is, he is so unbelievably enthusiastic about Surfer. I have ne- there are certain things I can say is like absolutes in the industry. Like, I've never worked with someone who's a harder worker than yeah. Umberto Ramos. <laughs> Umberto Ramos, he scares me how, how hard he works, his whole ethic. Yeah. Um, I've never worked with anyone as enthusiastic as Mike Allred. He is just so pumped for this Surfer book. He is, I believe he is going to be the first artist ever on Silver Surfer who is a surfer. Yeah. It's, you look at his art and there's, you know, all the way back to Mad Men, there's, there's a kind of quirky Kirby feeling to it. Yeah. Very much in this kind of, you can see his work that he's so influenced and he so loves Jack Kirby. And... There is a very important character in the book who's, it's really a book about the two of them, about the Silver Surfer and this Earth Girl who he's going to travel with like a companion. (laughs) Um, The name's not Amy, is it? No. Uh, But we, she's so important to the the chemistry of that book. And when Tom Brewer suggested Mike Allred, that we approach Mike Allred, um, I just it all snapped into place. I went, oh my god, we're doing a book about this quirky Kirby character. Well, the ultimate Kirby character, yeah. the ultimate cosmic Kirby character, who we're going to get into all these insane situations yeah. with this Earth Girl. Yeah. Every element <laughs> of that screamed to Mike Allred. And I, from the moment awesome. he suggested it, even though we kept banding around like other names, in my head I was writing it for Mike Allred. Even though we hadn't approached him yet, because it just gave me a template of how to think about it and how to, it was like, that's how I visualized the book. And w- when Mike got the, the first plot, he was like, did you draw this for me? And I was like, yes! <laughs> yes, I did! Talking, talking, about, talking about your writing, let's, let's talk about a, bit more, a bit more about yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So you broke into comics, I don't know if you broke into comics, but with Ren and Stimpy? Yeah. Was that your first comics work? Uh, that was my first ongoing comic. Yeah, first ongoing comics, I, which actually had a cameo from your future star, Spider-Man. Yes. Which was pretty cool. Um, when you're in the early stages of your career, you, you keep thinking someone's going to pull you off the stage. <laughs> so you don't leave anything for the trip home, you know? Yeah. And 
I was like, I'm doing a Marvel comic book. Yeah. Can we use Spider-Man? You Just know, for like, once. Let me do Spider-Man. <laughs> I, when I was writing that issue of Ren and Simpy, I honestly thought that might have been the only time I was ever going to get a chance to write Spider-Man. Yeah. And then when I, I was working on She-Hulk, we had Spider-Man guest star. Yeah. In, in my mind, I never thought I'd be writing Spider-Man. So when we did that Spider-Man appearance, I threw in every <laughs> Spider-Man thing I ever wanted to do. So, so, yeah. you, so you mentioned you moved on to She-Hulk, which I actually think is... Um, some of your best work. Oh, thank you. Um, I, and it's, I, Everything I, you've done since then sucks. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. But then, of course, you moved on to uh, The Thing, Great Lakes Avengers, Avengers Initiative, The Mighty Avengers, and that's just to name a few. I mean, there's more uh, stuff going on from there, some great stuff. But then, of course, you moved on to The Amazing Spider-Man, which, you, which just must have been... What, what, how was your, what was your reaction when you first got the call saying, we're putting you on to Spider-Man? I was I was very surprised. Uh, I was very lucky in that um, not every Marvel writer is invited to the big creative summits, the big creative retreats, yeah. where we plan out everything for a year. Mm. And I was just very lucky that I got to I I got to go to one of them, and I got to go to one of them because two of the main writers, one was sick and one couldn't make it, mm. and they had empty chairs, and Marvel had catered it. <laughs> I swear to God, <laughs> really? That there is empty seats, and uh, Tom Brevoort says, you know, this is all like pitching and throwing ideas, and Slot's really good with that. You go, you should see him in action. He's really good at the pitch. Hmm. Um, and and he said, like, we got an extra seat. He lives in New York. We don't have to fly him in. No. Sold. Yeah, we don't have to fly him in. All right, sure, bring him. And uh, one of the higher-ups said, make sure he doesn't talk too much, okay? <laughs> and I just had a great retreat yeah. where every suggestion I threw out, people were like, oh, we want to use that. Yeah. Or since I wasn't at previous retreats, I didn't know what the future plans were. Yeah. So I'd throw out an idea, and someone goes, oh, we're doing that, we're doing that. So anything I threw out was either something they loved or something that showed I thought just like them. Yeah. So at the end of the one first... Of us. Yeah, at the end of the first retreat, they went to, him, to Tom, they went, Ask him back to the next one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, like, let's see if it's not a flu. No greater compliment. Yeah. yeah, and then after the next one, they just made me a regular at the yeah. retreats. And once you're in there, like, that's when I pitched initiative. Um, cool. And they went, yeah, yeah, do that. And I'm like, okay, cool. And they saw that I was good in the room, that I played well with others, mm-hmm. that I threw, you know, I threw out and would play ideas and play with other people's ideas and throw them back. And everything you really need in that atmosphere in the retreat. And I remember at one of the retreats, uh, Joe Casada went around the room and asked everybody, like, if you could write any Marvel comic book, what would you write? And every single person around the room went, I'd, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Every single guy. It got to JMS, J, uh, Joe Michael Szczynski, who was writing Spider-Man at the time. And he said, Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> and then it got to me, and I'm, the, like, the last person in the thing, and I went, Moon Knight. And everyone went, Arr! You know, it was like you could hear the needle <laughs> scratch the record. Awesome. And... That was because I looked at that as an opportunity to let Joe Quesada know I really loved Moon Knight. Hmm. And I thought that's the level I was at, hmm. that I could you know, maybe someday write Moon Knight, who I do dearly love. <laughs> um, but I, uh, the reason I didn't say Spider-Man was I didn't think I'd ever be in a position where they would offer me Spider-Man. And I you are. Yeah, I just, in my mind, that wasn't a reality. And when they just, Marvel decided to go to uh, three times a month hmm. with Spider-Man, which is crazy. And they wouldn't have done it if we didn't get Steve Wacker, who was the editor of DC's 52. They went, he's the only person who could coordinate this. And Steve decided to put together a four- to five-man team uh, for Spider-Man. So it would all 
so you'd rotate writers. But we'd all work together like we were the writing team of a TV show. Right. Um, so the idea was we don't want alpha dogs in that room. Hmm. We want guys who will play well with others and work together as a team. And, you know, Slot's really good at that at the retreats. Hmm. See if he'd like to come on board and do Spider-Man. Oh, wow. Mind blown. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing was, when we were doing these retreats, and it was me, um, Mark Guggenheim, Bob Gale, who wrote Back to the Future, and Zeb Wells, when we'd be doing these retreats, I looked at this like, dear God, you know, I've just been given the keys to the kingdom, Spider-Man. Uh, we were told to come up with some ideas for, like, the first year. I walked in with, like, a yellow legal pad that was full to bursting of, like, everything I could ever want to do with Spider-Man. I'm just throwing all this stuff out, and, and so much of the stuff I, I threw out was stuff that we used in the greater scheme of things. And Was one of those ideas superior? Uh, no. Uh, but it was, it was all this stuff that, like... It, it was weird because we, they decided they didn't want alpha dogs. Hmm. They didn't want a, a leader. They wanted, they wanted four or five guys who were going to work well together. Hmm. And there'd be these moments at retreats where Steve or Tom would pull me aside go, what are you doing? Hmm. What are you doing? Come on. You know you're the lead writer on this book. Step up. Wow. you got to start acting like the lead writer. You unite you know, these guys. Like, Okay. And then later in the retreat, when we were doing just the Spider-Man retreat, Steve or Tom would pull me aside and go, what are you doing? You are not the lead writer on Spider-Man. This is a team. Yeah. And sometimes it would be the same guy in the same retreat. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was very it was very confusing times. Very for me. confusing, but fun. It was very fun. Um, and I got to be the only guy who stayed on for both teams because awesome. we switched over um, during Brand New Day to Joe Kelly and Mark Wade and Fred Van Lenthe, and yeah. I got I got to be this thing of continuity yeah. between the two Brand New Day teams. And there was a time when we knew we were going to take Spider Man to two times a month. And then do a satellite book called Avenging Spider-Man. Mm. And I just assumed after, you know, doing this for three years um, and having been on both teams that, like, I felt like my expiration date was up. So I went to Steve Wacker and I pitched. I said, uh, I know you're going to do this. I would like to go on to the sister book. I would like to write Avenging Spider-Man. And Steve said, no, you can't. And I was like, ah, damn it. <laughs> He's like, no, because I want you on the lead book. And I was like... Wow. So, yeah, so that was the only... Uh, I was very surprised at how it's all worked out. But we can't really talk about Amazing Spider-Man without talking about the controversy around Superior Spider-Man. Controversy? Um, you, don't, you don't think it's controversy? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Well, well, I, follow, I follow your tweets. I follow uh, all the, you know, the, sort of the articles, that, sort of the blogs that come up against it and stuff like that. And um, I, just, I just... I need to talk about it. I mean, as you can see from the chat, I'm mean, a you know, Spider-Man fan. He's and lying. He's, <laughs> he's talking to me half naked. In my, in my mind, I am. But uh, <laughs> no, it's a lovely Spider-Man shirt. Um, I'm wearing a Thor shirt. Yeah, which um, is awesome. No, it's like uh, yeah, Jason Aaron's Thor. Everyone should be reading Jason. Oh, they definitely Thor. should be. I was reading that this morning. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so, so the, so the controversy. I know I've been I've been on social media for a while. You have a very strong social media presence, and it wasn't until the Superior Spider-Man until I saw just how nasty social media could get because I'm not a teenage girl so I don't really cop this sort of stuff but I mean I just think some of it just went beyond the pale I mean just some of the stuff directed uh, yeah I, I now know how to say you're a fat fuck <laughs> and it's something like 10 languages now and it's thanks to that oh it's, my god I have no idea why but the meanest fans come yeah. from Brazil 
Brazil. I have no idea why. Unless it's one Brazilian guy with 80 different names. <laughs> well, now you're in lovely Australia. But, I mean, when it, gets to, when it gets to the point where there's death threats, I just think that that is, that's, I mean, it's, it's yeah. exceeding. You know what I mean? I mean well, how, did, how, did that, how did that sort of thing sort of affect you? Um, it affected me that I took a Twitter break. Yeah. Um, but I knew. I knew going in before it even started that this was going to be a contentious time. Uh-huh. But I also knew it was going to blow over when people read the end of Superior 1 right. and saw Ghost Peak. The minute they saw Ghost Beat, I knew all the furor would die down. Gotcha. Um, so I decided to take a Twitter break yeah. during that time. And d- during that time is when it got its nastiest. Yeah. Which is fine. But once Ghost Beat showed up, it, you know, it all petered away. Petered away. <laughs> I didn't. I've been on a long plane trip. 23 <laughs> hours in the air. <laughs> Uh, this, I'm like approaching a fugue state while we're doing this. But surely, I mean, I mean, I mean, you're laughing about it now, but surely it's a, it's affected you somehow. I mean, it's, I mean, some of, some of the attacks are very personal. Um, it it affect, It's weird because um, you know, a, a frequent criticism I get about my demeanor is that I don't take criticism well. Right. And I don't see it that way because I see a lot of times when the guys I'm smacking. Uh, where I'm, I'm either like poking fun of them or poking them with a stick, are guys who are either being very personal about it and negative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or um, they're people who say they aren't reading the book. You know, they're getting all their information from social media or yeah. Wikipedia. My thing is, if you're not reading it in execution, how do you know? That's the worst. Yeah. So to me, that's not criticism. Yep. That's ignorance. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not. I have no problem with with uh, sparring with people who do that, and it's funny. Um, that I find that most people actually read the book and, and you know, are enjoying it. Well, obviously, or they'd stop buying it. Yeah. So, um, and they're not doing that because no, it's the, it's like one of Marvel's best-selling <laughs> books. One, one of the things that one of the things that um, I mean, obviously, people were upset about. I mean, Peter being replaced, uh, it's, but not. But the thing is, it's not just one of Marvel's best-selling books. Yeah. It's selling better than Amazing Spider-Man was. Yeah. Superior is selling better by like. 20,000 copies. You know, so for everyone who's saying I'm leaving the book, there's, you know, one, they're either not. They're saying that online. Or two, we've brought people, other people back or new readers on. So... Sales are important, but quality is also important. And the important thing is that the Superior is actually a good comic. We we had somebody on the, the CBR message boards. Yeah. Who every, it was like every four issues or so, would declare that they were dropping the book. It was the worst affront to it, known to man. Yeah. It was awful. And they'd been a Spider-Man fan for you know X number of years. And this was the book that was getting them to stop buying Spider-Man. Bam. Yeah. And then four months later, like clockwork, he shows up. This is the issue that's making me stop <laughs> buying. And then you'd go like, wait, didn't you say this four months ago? Well, I kept reading. Right. So, he, but he he wasn't quitting the book. Every four months, he was making the de- declarative statement that he was, yeah. and he's still buying it. Yeah. I've had guys. This is something I hear a lot from retailers True. that there'll be people saying, "I am dropping this book. Take it off my pull list." Yeah. And then every time the book comes up, they bring it up to the I'll register. It the rest, yeah. It's just not in their pull box yeah. because they've dropped it. Yeah. They're just buying it every every issue. <laughs> one, of the, the, one, of the, one of the points where some of our listeners um, said that they were going to drop the book was the right at the start with Mary Jane. 
Ooh. Yeah, so that was a that was a, a pretty big issue, and I and I will admit, I'll be mm. a, I'll be a man and admit at that point I was actually quite angry as well. But he didn't. He, but he, he did it. He didn't. And that's more important. And what what I'd like to know is, was that always the plan that yes. he didn't? It wasn't. You weren't influenced no. by the horrendous sort of stuff being. Well, said. no. But what you got to realize is, we do comics three months ahead of time. Exactly. To get them in a drawer. Yeah. Uh, I think we had up to issue four or five in the drawer before anyone saw seven hundred. Right. So, you know, no, but we always knew right off the bat that Peter Parker and Mary Jane together, if Peter Parker is Otto Octavius, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, yes, the, minute, the minute you hear that premise, yeah. you go, but with that Mary Jane, oh, no, 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 no. But was it fun to take everyone right up to the precipice? And that's what I, that's what I wanted to hear. And then turn yeah. around? Yeah. Absolutely. That yeah. was hysterical it must it must be so gratifying for you to after the the furor between 701 to where you are now where like you said the highest highest selling and just how good it is i mean i I read 19 this morning Mm. um and spoilers oh i'm not going to spoil it (laughs) it's it's magnificent i mean it's i'm just enjoying the book so much you know i mean it's one of those those books that i just i wait to to get and see ah where do you read issue 20 Oh, really? <laughs> is that the start of Goblin Nation? Uh, no, no. Uh, Goblin Nation has a prelude in issue 26. Yeah. But we haven't been hyping issues 20 and 21. Right. We've hyped around it. We've right. hyped, uh, you know, the Venom arc. We've hyped the Spider-Man 2099. We're hyping Goblin Nation. And there's two little issues floating in there that we haven't hyped. Is this and where, where the, the mind is blown sort of issues? I don't think that the mind is blown issues. I think that every four pages... You feel the knife go in, and we twist it a little more. So it's like, it's going to be, it, these two issues, 20 and 21, are going to be people like screaming well, at, they're going to be screaming at their open comic. Is Stefano the artist for these issues? These, uh, yes. He's terrible. an awesome artist. Oh, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Um, oh, no, okay. no, it's, no, it's, um, it's Giuseppe Camicoli. Oh, is it? See, yeah, you, see, you got me on a 23-hour plane trip. Oh, I'm sorry. Giuseppe Camicoli, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, something, something happens. That's yes. true. Yep, that's Giuseppe, true. oh my God. Uh, we have so many artists and so many writers. Yeah. Stegman as well at, at the moment? Stegman, oh, but, but we have so many artists from around the world. Yeah. Um, and that's all because of C.B. Sobolski, hmm. uh, who's Marvel's talent scout, who flies around the world and brings us the best guys. Awesome. Whether it's Giuseppe Camicoli or Stefano Caselli or uh, Marcos Martin, uh, you know, Umberto Ramos and Edgar Delgado and all these, uh, they're from Mexico. Uh, we're, we, we're all over the place. And thank God for uh, Skype. Yeah. Yeah. All right, it's a, it's a staple with uh, No Culture Podcast that I ask this one question at every interview. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you were doing this interview, mm-hmm. what would be the one question that you want asked? God, um, I, have, I have no... Okay, okay. Here's the question I would ask. Yep. If I could only ask one question. Right. I would ask, if you had one question, what is the one question you would want asked? Oh my god, he folded in on itself! It's all like a Mobius strip. It's all like, oh, snake eating its own tail. How did he do that? Alright, I've I've got it then. Uh, What will it take for me to get written into a Spider-Man comic? What would it take for you to get (laughs) written into a Spider-Man comic? You know, this is is a good question because one of the things... I I think you need to become friends with either the letterer or the editor or uh, one of the Marvel higher-ups. That Every now and then I'll, I'll just have a random character... Like, you know, the, where you just need, like, a doctor, you know, or two cops talking to each other. And you don't want it to just be, hey, cop number one. 
Yeah. You know, so they just need a name. A lot of times I just stick in placeholder names, and then when I read the final version, the name's been swapped out <laughs> for a different name, and it means nothing to me because it's cop number one and cop number two. And can, can, can I'm I send like, you a reminder email and you put me yeah, in it? Yeah, I'm like, no, but I'm like, I'll call in the office like, why did that guy's name change from Al to like Gerard? <laughs> Gerard. You know, and they'll be like, uh, one of our friends is named Gerard. I'm like, okay. All right, what's well, a nice and easy one? It's David Walden. David Walden. There put you me, go. Put me in there. We'll, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been awesome. And that was Mr. Dan Slot. And, uh, that was a, a very interesting interview. <laughs> he did well being as tired as he was. He was very tired. To be fair, he was very jet lagged. He arrived at the at the hotel like forty five minutes before we started talking, so it was just crazy. That's so, an effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I did actually get another interview with uh, Mr. Brian Bloom, known for who would be known for his performances on uh, Oz and um, the A Team movie. That interview was um, absolutely magnificent, and but unfortunately it did go for too long. Uh, it's it really only meant to have like sort of 15 odd minutes, but this one went for like 45, 50 minutes. So, uh, um, but I've actually put that on the website. So if you check out www.culturepodcast.com, you'll be able to see the post there with the interview with Brian. So uh, check it out. It's uh, great stuff. You can play it straight from the website or download it. Exactly. Next up, coming soon. Coming soon in Australian cinemas, October 31, we get Thor The Dark World. Yay! Looking forward to this one. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. We'll be reviewing that on the show. And The Butler, which is getting a lot of Academy buzz. Mm. uh, It looks pretty cool. And we also have the winner of our our Madman Entertainment giveaway. Yay! Uh, Samurai Pizza Cats Volume 1 and Transformers Generation 1 box set. Completely remastered. Awesome. Um, it's more than meets the eye. It is more than meets the eye. And, uh, yeah, so like I said, all you have to do is just uh, tell me you want them. So, lovely Crystal will grab the NCP competition hat. It's sulking. It's... We didn't Because we didn't use it last time. It, it's it's a bit grumpy. It should be excited that it's being used now. It might, might bite me. <laughs> <laughs> it won't bite you. Just uh, go through the winners. The go in- through oh, the winners. Oh, I'm not supposed to look, because otherwise no. that's cheating. And here's the winner! And the winner is Jason Ten. Congratulations, Jason. Uh, well done, Jason. And uh, thanks very much for entering. If you could uh, just send me your um, postal address and uh, they'll be off to you. And thanks for entering. And thanks again to Madman Entertainment for uh, supplying them. Absolutely brilliant stuff. So uh, look forward to some more Madman Entertainment news. Madman.com.au. So before we go, I just want to mention uh, Kickstarter. I've mentioned in a past episode uh, during my review of The Mighty Titan uh, that I wasn't uh, a big fan of Kickstarter and didn't really quite understand it. And uh, it's uh, all these newfangled things, they scare me. And uh, kiddies these days in their new ways. <laughs> exactly. Get off my lawn. <laughs> um, but uh, I did during my review of Mighty Titan, I did, I did promise that uh, when the next issue was uh, put on the site, I would pledge for it. And uh, I have done so. The Mighty Titan number three, uh, issue three, is up and available and uh, is going gangbusters. It's already funded, I do believe. And uh, part of that fu- that funding goal was reached by myself. He's a man of his word. I am a man of my word. Um, it's really exciting because the, the pledge reward thing um, that I paid for is for me to appear in the issue. 
Awesome. I know. How cool is that? Awesome. <laughs> I, I, I picture I picture a line of uh, NCP fans with uh, physical copies of the Mighty Titan Three in their hands for me to sign, convention style. We can all have dreams. <laughs> So need to be mean. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's pretty cool. So issue three, starring moi. Moi. Is that how you pronounce it? Moi. It sounds like a kiss. It moi. does sound like a kiss, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. That's what Miss Piggy used to do. Um, moi, 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 but uh, the other thing with the thing with Kickstarter is uh, it's it's kind of scary because once you're on there, I mean, I went on there for Mighty Titan, uh, but while I was on there, I saw some other stuff that I thought was cool. Another Kickstarter project that I'd like to mention is Girls with Swords. Um, they're a Canadian uh, group of uh, Canadians and actors and uh, very talented people who uh, have put together a sort of a, a web show, which is actors against the green screen. So it's and it's uh, it's a fantasy, science fiction, games, anime type thing, and uh, it's it's quite funny. It's it's three three ladies, as the title would suggest, with swords, who uh, travel around the yeah, travel around this you know magical magical kingdom and you know fight bad guys. It's uh, it's pretty groovy, and uh, what, what drew me to it was their cool sort of pledge video. So on, on Kickstarter, you do this sort of like this video that introduces yourself and your project, and their one is hilarious. Uh, the, the people behind it are from uh, Mega Steak Man, and um, two of the guys from Mega Steak Man that just do this intro video, which was which was gold. Um, talking about how they've run out of money and now they need funding, and <laughs> they're going on Kickstarter. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Girls With Swords. Uh, so to finish up, you can contact us in many varied ways. And I mean, really, I, I've gone out of my way to make it easy to contact us in any, in any possible way you can, except maybe for smoke signals because I don't know how to read them. But, hey, I'd even accept a carrier pigeon. That'd be pretty cool. Carrier pigeon? Do you know how to read semaphore? No. What about, what about Morse code? See, same before I'd be willing to learn. Uh, willing to learn, yeah, mm-hmm. that'd be pretty cool. Morse code, I know a little. What about oldest lamp? So we have our website uh, at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, email feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, we have Facebook as well. www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. And more importantly than that, the most important of all, because I'm saying it, is Twitter, which is at at. Nerd Culture Cast, and you can also contact us on Skype at Nerd Culture Podcast uh, if you want to uh, record a message and we can play it on the show for you. It'd be uh, very cool if you have a question. Ask Luke our new segment, <laughs> and, and uh, okay, and uh, we'll we'll answer it for you. Um, or if you just have you know something to say, that'd be cool. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget, we're also an Amazon affiliate. So if you go to the website. Uh, there's an Amazon widget. Buy something through that widget. Doesn't cost you anything extra. I don't know who you are. Uh, then we get a slice of the profits. Slice of the, the cut of the profits. And we appreciate your efforts on our behalf. Oh, yeah. I, I damn appreciate it because you're all awesome. Every single one of you. Except maybe you. But everybody else, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget, if you want to hear some more of my uh, dulcet tones, you can find, you can check us out on Film Flams, www.filmflams.com. Uh, where Bo, uh, our newest crew member, and myself uh, do custom commentaries for films. And uh, the previous episode with Bo is, was our was our first weekly effort. I hope everybody liked it, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. It's episode sixty three. Thank you from me and the crew, Richo. I'm going to become an astrozoologist just because I can pronounce it right. Oh, <laughs> and Luke. Mm, I pronounced it correctly once already, so I'm good. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> And Crystal. Psst.
just slightly groggy. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.